All right, May, what are we talking about today? We're going to talk about the stupidest thing this country ever did. Wow, which one? Hey there, and welcome to Science Brunch. I'm Katie McKissick, aka Beatrice the Biologist, and I have my good friend May Prince with me. Hello. As always. And we're also joined once again by uh, my baby daughter, who I will try to keep quiet. She is <laughs> She's not already gonna, making noises. No, no, yeah. <laughs> and my dog, who is usually quiet, but we'll see. Maybe she'll start <laughs> panting heavily or barking at something. We That's don't definitely know. her if there's panting. It's her. Who are we talking about today, May? We are talking about Qian Zhusen. Fantastic. You don't know who that is. <laughs> no. Well, I'll tell you. Okay, good. <laughs> <laughs> but first, don't we have a, a science starter? So you know how we usually have something really kind of science newsy? Yes. I have something that's not like that at all. All right. <laughs> but here we go. <laughs> um, so my sister was in town recently, and we were talking about the podcast. And uh-huh. um, I was reminded about this story that I love so much about my little sister's first science experiment. Mm-hmm. So my sister is about four, which mm-hmm. would have made me about eight years old. Okay. And uh, she came to me just before bedtime and she said, Katie, I lost a tooth today. <laughs> and I, I'm going to put it in my pillow, but I think mom is the tooth fairy. Wow. So. Perceptive. Yeah. So she said, so I'm going to put it under my pillow, but I'm not going to tell mom. Uh-huh. And I'm going to see if the tooth fairy still comes. Ah. This is smart. This yeah. is like scientific method. Yeah. It yeah. was a really well-designed experiment. Hmm. And I said, that's a great idea, Annie. You do that. <laughs> and so she goes off to bed and I went to my mom and was like, hey, mom, Annie lost a tooth and she thinks you're the tooth fairy. So uh, get on it. You're the lab assistant in there just like throwing beakers on the ground. I completely destroyed her very well-designed experiment and I have no regrets. <laughs> But no, I thought it was the best thing ever. I mean, it's just like, I use it as my example of how science is a formal process Mm -hmm. for for exploring the world and figuring things out. But it is this instinct that all of us have, testing things and saying, well, if I do it slightly differently, what will the outcome be? And, you know, in the case of babies and toddlers, it's like, how far can I push my parents? And, (laughs) you know, in the case of, and it's not even just human. I mean, you know, dogs are testing things out too to kind of see what they can get you to do. And they're trying to train, my dog tries to train me as much as I'm trying to train her. but no, I mean we're all that's we're all just trying to make sense of things and so we conduct little experiments. Yeah. And I just love that she verbalized it so perfectly. Like I think it's I think it's her. So I want to I want to I want to con- Yes. So I'm going to see <laughs> if I change this one thing if the outcome is different as well. And so, I and I love that if she hadn't told me, uh-huh. she it would have she would have found out and said, oh, it didn't come. You know, I, the the independent. You know, there's the dependent variable, and the independent variable, the thing that you change. She was like, I'm going to change this variable and see if the dependent variable, which is the tooth fairy coming, changes. So yeah, so she would have woken up the next morning and found a tooth and no money, mm-hmm. and would have been like, Mom, you've been lying to me. You were the saboteur. I know. I mean, then we can when we can talk about you know the morality <laughs> the of what I did. Of that, yeah. yeah. Um, I mean, you were eight, so I'm yeah. gonna give you a pass on this one. But I mean, yeah, big sister dumb. Part of it is you know trying to right protect uh, young, you know your younger siblings and stuff. So 
So yeah, I guess I just, I wanted her to believe in the tooth fairy for just a little bit longer. I mean, she clearly was at the tail end of it. If she's figuring it out just on her own, yeah. it's not going to last she a sounds whole like lot a longer. But yeah, I guess I just was like, well, I don't want to, I don't want it to, to be a, a sad morning when she wakes up and there's still a tooth there and stuff. Although as far as, uh, you know, childhood uh, mythology, the tooth fairy is really the weirdest one. I mean, I think, I think Santa makes more sense than the tooth fairy. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. Well, yeah, I don't know. At least on, on Christmas, there's a set day yeah. and Santa yeah. knows that he's bringing everyone presents. But the tooth fairy's like constant surveillance to like figure out if you are losing teeth. That's why kind is she, of creepy. What is she doing with your body parts? Exactly. I mean, what she, are all the, where are all the teeth? Yeah. What does she do with them? Is See, she selling a, them? Is there some kind of underground yeah. Yeah, tooth ring? Like what, oh, what are we doing? Yeah. And, and yeah, I, I never believed in Santa growing up, but my mom deceived me about the tooth fairy and i asked her all sorts of questions trying to pinpoint Wait, you never it. believed in santa no for <laughs> some reason no no no. here's the thing I, I didn't figure it out myself i can't take credit for some reason my mom was like it's dishonest to oh, lie to my children okay. about santa claus but, but games are on for, for, the, for tooth the tooth fairy, fairy. and uh. so i asked her all these questions because i was like this doesn't make any sense yeah there's a fairy that comes and takes my teeth away yes like that doesn't make any sense so i was asking her all these questions like where does the tooth fairy live and she's like well nearby in our neighborhood and i was like oh nearby what does the house look like and she's like oh it looks kind of like our house and so i was imagining this miniature version of our house like stuck to a light post somewhere so every time we went for a walk i was like looking out like, where is this tooth fairy like leprechaun live? stuff i was on the hunt for it. i could never find it and then when i found out that she she was like oh yeah ha, ha, ha. wasn't that clever of me to lie to you in that way and i'm like not really you you, you have eroded the trust between us <laughs> yeah you know I'm, I'm surprised that's not more of the reaction when when kids find out about these things yeah um i think it was especially weird because she had immediately fessed up about santa mm-hmm. but not the tooth fairy for some reason that was even more yeah like screwed up my mind yeah yeah, yeah. because yeah. It's like why would you lie about one and not it doesn't doesn't make any sense this yeah. belief system of yours yeah so yeah hmm. i don't know I, i'm not i'm not sure where i am about telling kids about tooth fairy and santa yeah i feel like that's weird why would you lie to them about that i don't know why would you lie to them about things that come into their home and take their body parts yeah how come all of the yeah how come all the mythical creatures have to break into your house like why, yeah. is, why do they have to do that can't, can't you, you ring the doorbell like well, a can't you just person? Or why don't you like leave your tooth outside yeah or mail it in <laughs> yeah. like sweepstakes yeah. remember that why do they have to come take it from your pillow they come into your room and lift up your pillow can't you like tweet Damn. at the tooth fairy and then she'll come yeah, it's weird. I don't know. I, I admire Sister for trying to, you know, apply that method. Her her mistake was trusting. I know. Her older I'm, sister. I'm really uh, Annie. If you're listening, <laughs> I'm really sorry. <laughs> She's sorry. You should forgive her. Probably. I don't know. She was eight. Uh, I destroyed everything. So, how much longer did she believe in the tooth fairy? Then you know, I'm not sure. I mean, it probably was one of the last times. Yeah. Um. Yeah. But, but I tried. I tried to, to help out, sort and of. And that's the thing. Like, I remember being told, you know, you cannot tell kids at school that Santa does not exist. Yeah. And so you're just, like, co-opted in this whole system of yeah. lying. And you I- feel terrible. And then you feel responsible if you're, like, the one, you know, 
to tell well, then them. there was like the, the mean kid that would be on the the school bus you know the elementary school school bus like the sixth grader that would tell all the first graders eh, it's not real yeah just to be a jerk and it's yeah like, all right why you gotta do that but i do distinctly remember that thing happening you know an older kid telling a probably a kindergartner or something about Santa and this sixth grader. So like a 12 year old stood up and was like, he is real. And all of us were like, Ooh. everyone over the, over second grade went, Ooh, no, really dude. Yeah. It was, it was kind of See, embarrassing. That is the real damaging part because if you're the kid who doesn't figure it out, yeah. because why would you're you? So you're just like one. the trusting one and you believe what your parents say that has got to screw you up. Yeah. If you are one of those children, I'm so sorry. Yeah, we're sorry. Please don't blame science. <laughs> that science doesn't make any sense. Ruining everything <laughs> again. Figuring stuff out and ruining childhood yeah, that's since a forever. Saturday morning breakfast cereal, uh, a science comic, has a, a book that he kickstarted a couple years ago. It's called mm. Science Ru- Ruining Everything Since. What was the year he just like fifteen forty eight or something? And it just on the cover, it's like unicorns with like a slash, like oh. no, and like you know the Earth at the center of the universe, no, yeah. Like, sorry. At least with unicorns, there's a possibility that science could eventually make that happen. Ew. I mean, I'm just what saying. What kind of monster are you? Genetic engineering. Oh, if we're going to bring dinosaurs back for Jurassic Park. Remember there was that guy like not too long ago. He's like, yeah, we could genetically engineer dinosaurs again. Wouldn't yeah, that from be a, fun? From a chicken. And I'm like, yeah. well, did you not see Jurassic Park? Well, that did not end well. Well, they're full on talking about the de-extinction stuff with mammoths yeah. now that they have some DNA. Yeah, yeah. And, 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 and they have a, you know, close relatives and, and elephants and stuff. But yeah, I, that's an interesting one. But yeah. we're, we're really getting, getting off course here. I, don't even... is, I know. <laughs> this is what happens. Is, is this what our guest does? No, not <laughs> okay. at all. Okay. I was like, maybe we actually stumbled upon a, a segue. No, no. Of not. He's an engineer, but he did not make unicorns. I'm sorry. <laughs> I've now mentioned them. Well, I don't care what he did then because boring. I know. <laughs> let's, just, let's just throw this episode away. Well, see, from now on, all of the episodes will deal with unicorns. <laughs> or else we'll why bother watch. doing them? That'll be the theme for season three. <laughs> The perfect theme for a science theme show. Yeah, of course. It's fine. No, I'm talking about um, Chen Zhusen, and he's Chinese, so his last name comes first in our lexicon. So how are we going to... So What's I'm going to call him our... Zhusen. Okay. So I don't know if I'm pronouncing that correctly, and I apologize, but I looked up all these different ways of spelling it, and I found a spelling with umlaut, and that's the language that I like. <laughs> so I stuck with that one. Um, anyway, he was a he was a Chinese engineer and he is credited basically with bringing China into the modern age of ballistic missiles and space exploration oh, and cool. jet propulsion. Like he was the guy in China. And so everyone there knows who he is and he's basically a national hero because of his role in that, in that area. Um, but... He wasn't always in China, and he actually came to the United States for a significant amount of time. So that's all part of the story. So I'm just going to launch right Okay, cool. It. Yeah, I'm, I'm excited. So he was born on December 11th, 1911. 1911. And this okay. was in Shanghai, China. And I did not know much about Chinese history. It was never really the area of the world that I studied in school or whatever. So I had to look up some history. And basically, he was born right into the turmoil of modern China. And it was uh, Imperial China was just collapsing. It was like the last empire. And that was basically the year he was born. And then it progressed from there. And there was all of this like 
kind of infighting in the country and civil war. And that included like the Nationalist Party and the Communist Party. And they were like trying to fight each other. And then Japan came in and started invading and, and bombing. Uh. So it was like a, a mess. Like, <laughs> I mean. And he's a toddler like, what's going on? <laughs> yeah, Why is so everybody upset? When he was 14 years old, this was 1925, there was a military and political leader called Chiang Kai-shek sounds familiar and he became leader of the nationalist party and he started battling the communists kind of contingent within china for power and then in 1931 japan starts to invade china and take over great and at this point you know Sen was only 20 years old so he's still Mm -hmm. in school trying to figure things out and uh, it was in 19... I mean, all he wanted was to live in a country that wasn't being invaded. I mean... That's all he wanted. It's a basic Was that so much desire. to ask? I mean... And in, in 1932, actually, Shanghai was bombed by the Japanese, and they were trying to, to take over that territory. Um, and they were trying to crush student protests who were protesting against the invasion. So this was all while he was there and going to school and everything. Turns out he's a rock star, like he's super smart. So he did really well in the National College entrance exam in mechanical engineering. And he won a slot at the university, uh, Shanghai's uh, Jiaotong University, which was really good. So he went there. He graduated in 1934. So he's in his early 20s. And then he had an opportunity to come to the United States as part of a scholarship program. It was called the Boxer Indemnity Scholarship Program. And what it did was it paid for Chinese students to come to the United States and study, like paid all the expenses. So you didn't have to be rich. His family was actually fairly well off. He was the only child in an aristocratic family. His father was an educational reformer. His mother was also very highly educated. And so he was very well off, but he still got this scholarship to come to the United States. And the reason for the scholarship was the United States recognized that China was kind of in turmoil at this point, like this revolution happening, basically. Mm-hmm. And they were like, well, we want to be able to win influence in China, kind of like how the British had the previous century. And so in order to do that, they were like, let's offer free education to their top elite. Wait, they're trying to make the world a better place by being nice? Sort of. <laughs> it's kind it, of devious, but it's also devious. nice. It was devious because their whole point was... We can bring their smartest and brightest here and educate them, and that will give us moral and intellectual and commercial influence in China when they go back. Ah. So it was kind of like inception, <laughs> I don't know, educational inception or something. Um, so anyway, he was able to come over on one of those scholarships, and he went to MIT, and he was really smart engineer. He did a lot of research there. And then he left and went to Caltech in California in 1936 to study under engineer Theodore von Karman. I know and, that name. Yeah, he sounds familiar. I think we've mentioned him before. Like, remember the... He has a line. The von Karman line. Exactly. So it's <laughs> Why like... I have a line? I can't remember how far up it is, but whenever they're measuring, like rockets like the point at which they cross and they're technically in space right it's i think it's where the gravity of where you've basically escaped earth's gravity right but yeah so that line is named after this guy famous and obviously like he was into mechanical engineering and aeronautics and so caltech was kind of the place to be at that time the reason was they had built a wind tunnel a 10-foot wind tunnel and it was used by all these different companies in the area as well aeronautics companies who were developing 
And part of the reason why they were all building in Southern California is because we have beautiful weather all year round and you can launch rockets and fly planes and yeah, the do same whatever. reason we have surfers. Exactly. Is why we have aer- aerospace. <laughs> exactly. We have surfing aeronautical engineers. It's a weird place. Mm-hmm. But he was also a mathematician. He was really good at doing reliable calculations by hand which at the time was super valuable because they did not have computers yet. They had slide rules. Yeah, and this was the which era... Which I don't know how to use. They had slide rules and human computers. This was the era of Katherine Johnson. Right, right. So this was when, if you haven't listened to that episode, you need to go back and listen to when it. When computers were people, people who compute exactly. things. Exactly. And she was a black female computer, and there was a whole contingent of them at uh, what became NASA. And they did all the calculations for even human spaceflight missions by hand, which is... Like the most nerve wracking thing, I can't even calculate tip at the table if people are looking at me. Um, and these people were like, oh, yeah, sure. Put the guy in the capsule and shoot him up there. Yeah. He'll be fine. Just knowing that you, you did one, if you did one decimal wrong, yeah. everybody's going to die. Or any, yeah, if anything. <laughs> and, and then like, you know, sometimes they couldn't, they couldn't control anything. Like the guy in the pod can't do anything. He's just basically, you know, an experimental human body. And so all the calculations w- was really what was navigating that thing. Yeah. So, yeah. You know, what's funny is that the, the, some of the biggest space mistakes, and it could, it could just be, you know, because there were more space things going on, but some of the biggest space mistakes were definitely done with computers. So it's like, yeah. maybe you were more careful when you had to do it all by hand and triple yeah. check things. Cause it's like, you know what the the lander we lost on mars because of the the metric versus imperial systems situation because they did they that in that case it was they did all the calculations in metric but then the people who built the actual lander were were using imperial units and so whoopsie daisy (laughs) didn't work out well yeah and even it was john glenn before he went on his his orbit around the earth he was like they did the calculations with a, a mechanical computer and then he was like could could you have Catherine yeah. check the numbers because that they, robot there doesn't know that know. it's me in that little yeah. box <laughs> yeah you want someone with a vested interest yeah. who you've met in person yeah, to be like you know let what? me computers double check don't really care if you die they did you really know don't care computers? and if you're if you believe the the theories about ai <laughs> like going wrong then you think they're out to kill us <laughs> But yeah, so he he was at Caltech, and while he was there, this was all during the time, I mean, 1936 was when uh, the quote-unquote Suicide Squad was at Caltech. And the Suicide Squad was a group of guys who liked to blow stuff up on campus. Mm -hmm. You know, like you have your student clubs, and they like to blow stuff up. (laughs) And what they were trying to do is figure out rockets, because this is an era where we didn't have rockets yet. And they were trying to, you know, shoot stuff into space and figure out, like, how to shoot a rocket straight up as opposed to into the side of a building, which <laughs> I think they did a couple times. Slight differences. Yeah. And finally, the the university administration was like, you guys. You guys are the you, worst. <laughs> you cannot do this on campus anymore. And they were like, fine. And so. I wonder how that conversation actually went. It was kind of like, <laughs> okay. We totally understand that you like blowing stuff up. We, we really we, admire this. We want to encourage that. But can you just do it somewhere else we like your chutzpah because you take it into the mountains kind of annoying yeah so that's what they did they went off into the arroyo seco uh, which are these kind of low hills right above pasadena in california and they were like 
well, we'll just blow stuff up here. So that was like October. I think it was Halloween night, 1936. That's they right. started blowing yeah, stuff up. Yeah, the JPL anniversary is, is a, a yeah. Halloween. I always forget that. So Jusen uh, started getting involved with them. He arrived right that year, 1936, and I think got involved slightly afterwards. And that basically became the beginnings of the Jet Propulsion Laboratory at Caltech, which is now um, part of NASA. And that was, yeah, it just started out with a bunch of guys like trying to blow stuff up in, in the mountains. Like so many other things. Like so many other things. You know, if your kid is in the backyard blowing stuff up, like maybe someday he'll be a, a NASA facility. You just don't know. <laughs> or he'll be a supervillain. You know, <laughs> exactly. it's just kind of, it's a toss-up. Yeah, I don't think any of these guys became supervillains, but there was definitely that potential. Well, what is a supervillain but someone who was destined to be an engineer and just got some bad advice? Exactly. Or, you know, just <laughs> they have a, their, their moral compass is a little busted, you know? <laughs> just keep those guys on track. Um, so he became a recognized expert in aerodynamics and was like playing around with these guys, you know, with jet propulsion stuff and trying to figure out rockets. And he received his doctorate in aeronautics in 1939. So this is oh, right no. before World War II. Uh, Always World War II. Can we just get away from this but war? But guess what? You know, let's cancel the war. World War II was one of the accelerators of science. You know, it's like, there was all this pressure to make leaps and bounds in different fields, especially in aeronautics, because of its relation to rocketry and ballistic missiles and all that stuff. So this is why we keep coming back to it and why so many of these people were involved in the same projects during that time, because that was just the place to be, right. you know? So much stuff needed to blow up, I guess. <laughs> they were like, oh, we blow stuff up. That's what we do for fun. It's of like, course we'll join let's, the war Let's effort. figure out how to blow stuff up, make nuclear bombs, and let's figure out how to blow stuff up to send stuff into space. Yeah. So he actually had a very, you know, good career here in the United States. He stayed in the United States after he got his PhD, and he was working with the U.S. Army, and they were trying to figure out basically um, how to race the Germans to a rocket and an atomic bomb at the same time. Um, so like Oppenheimer, we talked about him. He was involved in building the atomic bomb for the Manhattan Project. And Jusen was also involved in that in some way, although I couldn't really find any details about how. But a lot of the physics and the aeronautics experts of the time were involved in that effort because they were just get, grabbing every spare scientist that they could find and digging them. them in the desert <laughs> and being like, you guys go nuts, figure it out, you know? And so where, it was... Where were they grabbing them? Oh, I don't know. By the science. By the science. <laughs> <laughs> so he contributed to the development of jet-assisted takeoff technology, which the military started using. I mean, this was all kind of for military stuff because that was the application. And um, he helped create the U.S. long-range rocket research program. Like, all these things were just nascent and, like, starting up. And all these scientists were just plopped in charge of these units because... They were, they were like, they didn't have time, have time to find administrators. They're like, whatever, you know, rockets, just do it. You know, and there's like two guys that know how to do it. And they, you know, were put in charge. And um, this led to the first successful solid fueled missile, the Private A for the United States. And that was important because, you know, solid fuel is like not as explodey when things go wrong. Well, what is it? Solid fuel. What's that? It's uh, as opposed to liquid fuel. <laughs> I think solid I don't actually fuel. know. But he helped with all this stuff. And they actually traveled to Germany after World War II, and they brought him with them, the military did, to debrief all of these German scientists who, you know, worked for the Nazis. And now oh. the U.S. was like, we know you're a Nazi, but you can't be all bad because you're also a brilliant scientist. 
And, uh, you know, they snatched them up as soon as they could. And those people were basically given amnesty in a way because we really needed them to go up against the Soviets. I don't know what my face looks like right now. It's but not, it's... it looks not impressed is yeah. what it looks like. Um, <laughs> but the problem was, is that if, if you didn't take these people, yeah. the Soviets would. Yeah. And if you locked them up, then that was just wasted talent. I guess that was the perception. Yeah. So he went over there and helped them interview these people, I guess, to figure out if they actually knew what they were talking about. One of the people he actually interviewed was Werner von Braun, who became the father of the U.S. rocket and space program, um, which is interesting because he, Xu Sen, became the father of the Chinese space and rocket program. So at one point they were talking to each other. And hanging out in, you know, formerly Nazi Germany. Just a couple of dads. Yeah. Just, you know, chilling, whatever, <laughs> um, while the U.S. Army watches you talk. <laughs> but he did all that kind of stuff for them, um, part of the war effort. And he was part of the science advisory board that advised the U.S. military during that time, all on the issues of jet propulsion, rocketry to build missiles. So World War II ends. He gets married. He marries actually a famous opera singer from China. And that's in China. And he comes back to the United States. And he went along with Von Karman, who, you know, they had been at Caltech. They both went back to MIT for a while. And then <laughs> Caltech, I guess, stole them back a couple years later, because 1949, they both came back to California. Oh, wow. Yeah, it was like bouncing it's back and forth. a lot of moving, yeah. Um, but I guess they couldn't give it up. So they came back to California, and he became a professor at Caltech, as did Von Karman. They were both running programs, the wind tunnel, like that all continued, um, especially it was both in the commercial and the military sector afterwards, develop, still developing all of these things, building better planes, trying to build missiles, all within the race with the Soviet Union for the Cold War after World War II, because we just roll one war into the next. Yeah, I just, I'm sorry, all this stuff about Russia and also Nazis, I'm just like, wow, we haven't made any progress. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, what exactly. What are we going to do, you guys? Sorry. So one of the things he did when he came back to Caltech was he helped them put together what became Jet Propulsion Laboratory in Pasadena. So before, where it was just kind of contained under Caltech, it now became its own entity, and they got more and more military funding to develop all sorts of tech uh, for the United States government. And he actually, in 1949, wrote a proposal for a winged space plane, that was kind of the basis for what became the space shuttle, oh. like decades later space in the United plane. States. I, I, I wish you called it the space plane. <laughs> I know. Well, if you're a child of the 80s, you remember this, the space shuttle and like yeah. how they could reuse it. And that was, that was great because before they were just like firing people in the space and hoping for the best right. and not getting any of the equipment back. Yeah, it's, I don't know. Space and space shuttles, they just, they look pretty cool. Because yeah, they do look like space planes. Yeah. I saw um, when Endeavor was being moved from, oh man, where was it before? Because they moved it to LA. It's in the, it's at the California Science they Center flew near it downtown. In, yeah. Remember? And I think they landed at LAX, right? Yeah. And I saw it when it was flying around because as it did its tour, I, but I forget where it was coming from. I don't know Do if remember? people remember this, but it was on top of a huge jet. So yeah. the space shuttle was like sitting on top of a piggyback. huge, yeah, on piggyback. Like, yay! It was and then, so strange looking. I mean, really I know, cool looking. But it was really cool because they actually flew that jet all around Los Angeles yeah, so they, everyone could see it. Which was really awesome. I yeah. mean, I'm sure that actually cost quite a bit of fuel. I know, I know. <laughs> yeah, they did come some laps 
I was on top of a parking structure watching it and everybody was so excited. It was just, it was the Yeah, we went to thing. a hill and there were a bunch of people up there and yeah, it flew it was, by. It was really it was nice. awesome. But then they had to actually move it through the streets. Yeah, they landed and then they had to, um, yeah, close a bunch of big streets and they took kind of a roundabout way to get towards downtown because not all streets are big enough because right. there are as you get to that old area of LA there's some old streets that are not wide, wide and they enough. didn't want to have to chop down old trees yeah. and stuff like that yeah. so they had to, to they, so the, yeah the route was very odd because they yeah. had to stay on you know lanes roads that were at least three if not four lanes and the ultimate was so destination wide. was for the what, which museum was it California Science Center yeah but like they had it's quite a ways yeah it took a while yeah but people were so I think it excited. might have taken more than a day. I think it was because it was they're only going like ten miles an hour or something. Yeah, it like was they're like really slow. Oh, yeah, we'll just go thirty five miles. It was like an hour. the slowest parade <laughs> ever. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, so nineteen forty nine, he decides he's going to apply for U.S. citizenship because you know he's got this yeah, he's awesome life here in the United States. He's a professor. He's working in the place to be. For I'm sure it was a no brainer, right? It was a no brainer, and the U.S. said. Nah, thanks. What? Because... Who makes these decisions? This was around the time of, you know, ooh, communism, Red Scare. So actually there was a unit in the LAPD, the Los Angeles Police Department. It was called, they were called Red Squads. They were in police departments, I think, all over the country. And their job was to infiltrate communist networks, local communist networks, and basically out, you know, their members and report them to the FBI. So he was reported for being part of the Communist Party or being Communist Sympathizer. And he, he was like, he realized, I think, very quickly how dangerous this was going to be. Because this was a time where this could just ruin your career. It could ruin your life. They could throw you in jail. You were disappeared. I still am not clear about how you could be thrown in jail for that. It's so, yeah. it's so like, First well, even today, if you apply for a government clearance, they ask you if you've ever been a part of the Communist Party. Yeah. Uh. The, the look that Katie gave me <laughs> says it all. So he realized how bad this could be. And so what he did, he was like, well, I'm going to GTFO for a while. <laughs> and so he packed up all his belongings and his wife and he had two kids, a son and a daughter, and he tried to leave the country and they stopped him. And they confiscated all of his belongings and they Whoa. went through it and they said, we're, we found classified documents in his belongings and that's part of the reason why we're going to detain. And he was detained on charges of espionage. Oh, my Lord. Later, when they looked over the documents, they found out that, yeah, some of them were marked with classifications, but it was outdated. It was old documents, whatever. So they were not actually classified. He did not have any classified material with him. But it didn't matter. His security clearance was revoked on the grounds that he had communist associations and he was held under house arrest Whoa. for five years, I oh believe. Oh, my God. What? Yeah. It was a long time. So this was part of the problem. So he, you know, was from China, where communist forces were vying for power. And they were automatically suspicious of him. He had been involved in all these government programs. They were afraid that he was, you know, passing along secrets to the Chinese government, all that kind of thing. And so he actually admitted, he was like, yeah, when I was a graduate student, like... More than a decade ago, I had friends who were in the Communist Party. One of those friends was Frank Oppenheimer, the brother of Robert Oppenheimer. And oh. we remember Robert went through the same deal when his security clearance was revoked. And they right. were like, well, your brother's in the Communist Party. And he's like, yeah, but I'm not. You know, yeah, I'm just you know his brother. Different? Yeah. And so he got caught up in kind of the same thing where, you know, your friends are 
communists or communist sympathizers and you're just there for the cheese cubes and the wine and like you get caught up in the wrong crowd like, what are you guys talking about yeah. oh i'm gonna go over here and there's really no way to escape that kind of connection at that time especially in intellectual circles like everyone was a leftist of some kind so he got in trouble for that and he denied that he had any communist re- any leanings and he rejected the accusation that he was trying to pass along secret information to the chinese government but they still wouldn't, you know, grant his clearance. And Caltech colleagues and president stood up for him and said, no, there's no way, you know, he's a great guy. He's a true American. Like, he really wants to stay in this country and help us out. Like, what are you doing? And it didn't matter. Really? Yeah. Man. So after five years under house arrest, he was allowed to return to China. There was an exchange where he was um, kind of exchanged for a bunch of American airmen that were captured during the Korean War. So huh. that was an official exchange with the Chinese government. And the winner of that exchange was the Chinese government because Xu <laughs> <laughs> Sen was awesome. Like he was at the beginning of his career, basically. And he was one of the people who developed the U.S. you know, rocketry system, missile system, the basis for the entire space program, which became you know, the space race with the communists. Uh, So he he originally came over because we wanted to educate him and and have him go back and be like, America's great. And then we did all of that. Yep. (laughs) And we we sent him back and we cut him off and he never returned to the United States again. Oh. That was it. Hmm. Of this exchange and, you know, deportation, former Navy Secretary Dan Kimball later said, it was the stupidest thing this country ever did. He was no more a communist than I was, and we forced him to go. Saying it was the stupidest thing we ever did, those, those are fighting those words. Those are fighting words. <laughs> That's the stupidest thing? Oh, yeah, There's so many to choose from. Yeah, exactly. And so Xu Sen goes back to China with his family, and he receives a hero's welcome uh, from the communist regime that has finally defeated the nationalist forces there because they realize this guy's awesome and yeah. he's going to help launch us into the modern age and become a competitor with launch. not only the Soviet Union, but the United States, yeah. their rivals. Because at the time, China had been in so much turmoil just trying to get its civil war under control. It did not have time to develop. It didn't have time for science, nothing. Like, it was struggling. And so getting him was a huge, huge win. In 1949, Mao Zedong had come to victory, the communists, and this was, you know, there were mass executions and everything like that, just trying to clean house, basically, like (laughs) regimes do. And then in 1958, Mao launched the Great Leap Forward, which was his five-year economic plan. And then in 19, starting 1966 was the Cultural Revolution, where he had this campaign to, you know, kind of get everyone together and under the same flag, basically. And all of this was kind of the environment that Xu Sen came back to. And he became kind of politically bulletproof because he was such a talent, such a scientific talent that they were like, he's loyal to the party, he's fine, but really no matter what he does, we're just going to keep him. Like they realized we're not going to make the same mistake that the United States did. Yeah, (laughs) We're going to hold on to this guy. So they held on to him, and he made Chinese missile defense possible. 
part of the problem was, you know, figuring out missiles that would fly without crashing into the things you didn't want them to crash into. And uh, <laughs> That's putting it mildly. <laughs> that is putting it mildly. And he was, you know, helping them along with that. And he figured out one of the problems that they were having uh, was like a high frequency vibration in the engine, in the rocket engine. And so he was like, oh, yeah, just fix this. And then they fixed it. And then by 1964, which was not far, you know, he, he had arrived in the mid-50s. So within 10 years, China created the first medium and short-range missile for their program. And that immediately kind of put them on the military map of power. Because the thing with atomic bombs... The ones that the were the thing about atomic bombs. The thing about guys. atomic bombs <laughs> is the ones that the United States dropped on Japan were dropped from planes. Right. And it is hard to fly a plane over somewhere when someone is shooting at you and you're trying to drop a bomb in a specific location. So the way to drop bombs in specific locations is to build missiles and put the bomb on the missiles and then shoot them wherever you want. Oh, that's how you do it. You know, yeah. I was thinking the other day. <laughs> If only. <laughs> How should I launch a nuclear attack? I just, uh, I'm yeah. not, not sure about it. Just uh. So the development of intercontinental ballistic missiles, ICBMs, was what drove the, a lot of the Cold War. Because then you could shoot nuclear missiles at each other from very far away. Yay. You didn't have to travel there. You know, they became... Yeah. Land-based, you could shoot them from planes, and you can shoot them from submarines. Isn't this what North Korea is saying it's able to do now, or is close to, or something? It's working on it. But part of their problem that they're having is rocketry. They can't get their rockets to not explode midair. They can't get their rockets to go to the right place. This is hard. It's really hard. Thank goodness. (laughs) I know. And what makes it hard as well is that you also have to have the nuclear components correct. So there's all these elements that have to come together. And this is why if you have a brilliant rocket scientist who already knows all of the science behind it, you keep knows them. how Germany you keep did them, it, you guys. the United States did it, probably knows how the Soviets did it because you're in those military circles, you are going to be able to build a program for another country from scratch. And let's not forget that China has also shared this information with other countries. Pakistan. <laughs> And, you know, so it becomes a system where it's like, if the United States hadn't let Shuzhen go, what would have happened? What would have happened? I don't know. <laughs> Something the world better, would, maybe. The world would be maybe better, yeah. Oh. Yeah. So, well, good job. Yeah. I want to find who whose ultimate call this was and punch him in the face. Yeah, I know. And so, you know, part of this was China also tested their first nuclear bomb in 1964, and they developed this whole line of missiles that could develop, you know, deliver those bombs. And so that made them a military power. And he's credited with this program and also with their satellite program and what eventually became their manned space missions. Even though he wasn't involved in those, he's still seen as the figurehead for that entire system. Because it all involves getting stuff off the ground. Exactly. And like, you're not putting guys on rockets, but it's kind of the similar kind of system that they're using. So he was the rock star of the rocket rock star. China's ballistic and space systems. Um, So he's a household name? He is. And he died in 2009. Oh, okay. And so it wasn't that long ago. He lived to be very old, 98. And, uh, he retired, I think, in the early 90s. But yeah, he was very well known in China. Um, I read articles about, you know, from the time of his death and all of the 
communities, the scientific communities were very shocked to hear that he had died. Like, even though he was old, like it was just kind of a shock to the system. Like that was a a national hero that they had all grown up with. You know, he'd been around since the mid fifties. So that was 60 plus years of him being this figurehead in China. And, you know, he'd been a a member of the Chinese Academy of Sciences, the Chinese Academy of Engineering. He was a director of all these different institutes, um, for, you know, jet propulsion and, and machines. You know, I'm so glad that there isn't a current, you know, immigrant situation where we're judging people based on what country they came I know, from or right. something. I'm really glad that we figured that out. Yeah, yeah. We're not going to make that mistake again. Oh, totally. Because that would be terrible. Yeah. I mean, I mean why would we do something like that? Who knows what we would give up and uh, to whom? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Thank goodness. Thank goodness. Flip. I'm, I'm going to throw the table out of the window right now, you guys. <laughs> Yeah, take this microphone and everything it's attached to and hurl it off a cliff. Yeah. Well, there were, I I did see some recent articles that used him as an example of, you know, maybe we should rethink who we're throwing out and why and, you know, the motivations behind that and what we might lose in the long run Mm -hmm. uh, or give to someone else. I think what you said was long run. That implies you're thinking long term. This is true. And I don't think that that is the United States' forte. (laughs) (laughs) This is true. So, yeah, hopefully, hopefully we refrain from making the same mistakes. But I I would hope so. You know. Hopefully. Did you read, did anything in your reading kind of talk about how he felt about these things? Did he, did he say, was he just kind of like, you know what, I'm just going to do my work and just kind of ignore that stuff? Or was he, you know, pretty upset about it? I mean, I didn't find anything, but it's hard to find anything because once he went back to China, he did not speak to Westerners. Right. He didn't give interviews. And, you know, whatever comes out of their media is very controlled. Of course. He kind of went behind a, a wall. Yeah, exactly. A, a, a and curtain, so their it. perception and uh, public image of him was that he was a loyal party member who, you know, had unquestionable fidelity to the Chinese government and the efforts there. And he was able to, you know, navigate and survive all the continued political turmoil in that system, you know, after Mao. So he seemed to have done all right, but I have no idea what his personal feelings were about it. I think in the States, you know, before he left, all of his colleagues indicated that he wanted to be in the United States, that he wanted to stay. I mean, he tried to become a U.S. citizen. He had helped the U.S. military during the entire Second World War, you know? Yeah, if that's not enough, I mean, who, what, what is? Exactly, exactly. So, and he was privy to the most classified scientific conversations of that time. And still we chose not to trust him. Yeah, I mean, clearly he didn't let it, you know, hold him down too too much. I mean, right. um, still was pretty productive when after he left, but yeah, but but I mean, I yeah, I hope he wasn't too raw about it. I mean, that sucks. Yeah, I mean, he was in the United States for twenty years, and look what he accomplished. Yeah, we could have had him for another sixty. Yeah. So yeah, way I, to go, United States. I know. Let's do better, please. 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 Yeah. <sighs> baby agrees yeah man i'm so frustrated right now <laughs> i know how do we channel this frustration i don't know tell people about this story and tell them you know let's not be idiots again yeah i mean we have to learn our history because yeah this is an example of someone i'd never heard of yeah so i didn't know that we had already i mean i knew that we had made these mistakes before but i guess i just didn't know of a, such a such a good example that is in some way similar to stuff that's going on right now 
Um, and and the university, you know, Caltech continued to stand by him. They gave him a, a distinguished alumni award, I think, in the late seventies. Oh wow! Because they were still like, yeah, he was a great guy. Yeah, we're really sorry that we're we not lost over it. him. We're yeah. not over it. Yeah, exactly. And that you know, they stood by him as much as they could. But there was just a limited amount you can do against a U.S. government that is d- determined to deport you. Yeah. So the way to channel your frustration is to not get over it, to stay angry, and to hold people accountable, and just. Keep on going. And if all else fails, you know, defect to the homeland or the enemy or whatever and work for them. I mean, he probably just wanted... He probably just and wanted get revenge. To, the <laughs> end. What, what? What do you guys want? He probably just wanted to do cool stuff with jet propulsion. Yeah. You know? He just wanted a science. He just so, wanted, wanted to make things go boom. Gotta go somewhere to science. Yeah. You gotta go somewhere to science. <laughs> Let's be that place where people science, you yes. guys. More science. <laughs> more science and more science brunch. Exactly. So yeah, I would totally go to brunch with him. We could we could do it here in Southern California. Yes. You know, bring we'll him, back, him back. Take his family as well. I'm yeah. sure they had a hard time. Yeah, and... we'll go somewhere in Pasadena near Caltech and JPL. Exactly. I'm sure they got some good brunch places up there. Exactly. It's fancy. But I would love to hear, you know, about his personal experience and what he really thought of it all because I don't think we have that information and I don't think we ever will unless his family ever chooses to talk to media, which I'm not sure will ever happen. Yeah, why would they? I yeah. don't blame them. Yeah, exactly. And they might resent it too. And it sucks for his kids because they were born in the United States and then they had to they had to leave their country yeah, and go somewhere hard. brand new after their father was under house arrest for five years. So not I great. Hope, I hope they spoke Mandarin well. Yeah. It must I'm be sure hard to learned. go back and be like, oh my gosh. <laughs> We, we didn't we didn't really do this so much. We did not go to a language immersion school. Whoops. Yeah, it's hard. So So be nice to people, you guys. Yeah. Just <laughs> don't don't send people away. They're probably for no fine. Reason. Yeah, don't throw them away. Don't throw people away. That's yeah. a good philosophy. Yeah. Yeah. That's an excellent way to end this. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Science Brunch, even though it was a giant downer. We promise we won't be so morose the next episode. Um, uh, So we'll do better. In the meantime, follow us on Facebook and Twitter and all the things, and we'll see you next time. Bye.